You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Dill pickle, fustian, salvo, chafe, pocket knife. Imagine if the dictionary were not in alphabetical order. Fervid, abscess, menagerie, paneer. Feckless, it abeyance, would be difficult to look up a word, at least any word you're actually looking for, although you'd be introduced to a lot of new ones. And while you might expand your vocabulary this way, finding a particular word would be kind of frustrating. Without order, our lives would be random. But maybe our lives already are. And that's it for our show. We'd like to thank Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Putting the ending of something before the beginning is more transposition than random, wouldn't you say? Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my ragtime gal. me a kiss, my That's better. Your ears are attuned to Big Picture Science. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. Okay, you've got the theme here. Spontaneity, randomness, the unpredictable. But there's a real scientific question here. To what degree does chance govern our lives? More than you might think, according to a theoretical physicist I spoke with, Let's get a sense of what this man means. What is the saying? Chance favors the prepared mind? You have to think very slowly and carefully when you think about chance. Hey, Gary. Yeah. Can you help me with the experiment? It's a coin toss experiment. Yeah, sure. I'm Leonard Mladenov, and I'm a theoretical physicist. Okay. Can you give me two coins? Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, Leonard, chance... Okay, I just okay. need two of them. Got it. I'm thinking of a very simple example mentioned in your book. You know, you, you take two coins and you, and you flip them. Okay, toss the coins in the air. I know you have to do two at the same time. All right, let me try that. And the question is, what are the odds that one of them will be heads? Don't look at them. Okay. Right, and you think, well, it could be that zero are heads, or one of them is heads, or two of them are heads. So obviously the chances are one in three, and that's the wrong answer. Do you want me to give you the right answer now? Okay. Well, why are we so bad at this? Well, do you want the right answer first or just why we're so bad at this? A good way to approach all these problems is to look at all the separate possibilities and catalog them. You have those two coins. What are the possible combinations there could be? Heads, 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 tails. Tails, heads, and tails, tails. So those are the four ways it could come out. Nothing subtle there. That's just plain real world. So if you want to figure out how many combinations there are that would entail just one head. Oh, did you say one heads or, or a head? One, one, one head, yeah. How many of those entail exactly one heads? Well, it's the heads, tails, and the tails, heads. Two of the four, so your chances are two out of four. But not heads, heads? No, that would be two heads. <laughs> Which is usually better, right? Better than one. 
<laughs> of course, if they have different probabilities, if coin were weighted 90% toward heads, then... Yeah. Okay, be a uh, we don't need exceptions to the rules just yet, Leonard. The point is that our ability to predict outcomes, especially where numbers and statistics are involved, is just not very good. Now, maybe you found the coin toss challenge straightforward, but other examples of randomness may not be. The Drunkard's Walk is how Leonard Mladenov deliberately entitled a book he wrote not long ago about the role of randomness in our everyday lives. So, Leonard, I come back to my initial question to you. Why are we so bad at predicting the outcomes of probabilistic events? Okay, that's because people have an innate feeling that they have the ability to predict the future, or if they see patterns, they have a a built-in feeling that they're meaningful and a built-in tendency to feel they can control things. Let me give you an example. Scientists have a game called the matching game where they show people flashing lights, a red light and a green light, and... They flash without any pattern, just you know, randomly red-green, except that the green light, let's say, flashes more often, say 60% of the time, and the red light is 40% of the time, but otherwise there's no pattern. They have people watch that for a while. They don't tell them why they're watching it. And then at some point they just say, I'll give you a dollar for every time you guess right. Well, most people in that situation, having observed for a while, you know, will sense that the green light is flashing you know, roughly 60%, and then they'll start guessing green, green, red, red, green, 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 red, green, green, red, something like that. And, and they'll basically guess green about 60% of the time and red about 40% of the time, but they'll act as if they think they can guess the pattern. They will just mix them up and try and guess the pattern. They seem to feel that they can have success that way. But a better strategy, and one that if you give the same experiment to a rat, and since they don't care about money, you offer them a little sugar water instead of a dollar, they'll just say, oh, hey, the green's more often, and they'll just go, well, green, 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 green. They're just going to guess the greens, let the reds go, and and take what they can get. People actually do worse by trying to guess because we have a built-in feeling that we can do better, that we can um, predict the future. And when we see patterns, we think there's reasons for them. Okay, so this is not superstition or anything like that. This is just a matter of our brain thinking that I see the pattern and I can even improve my odds over this very brute force rat approach of just always choosing green. People think that. There's another interesting experiment uh, that was done at Yale where students were guessing the results of coin tosses, either heads or tails. They would look at 30 coin tosses, um, and they would, get, they would be told to guess, and after they guessed, the experimenter would say, right or wrong. Then afterwards, they debriefed them with some questions. Now, everyone knows that intellectually the students know they can't control or predict how the coins are going to come out. So if you ask them that directly, of course, intellectually, they know they can't. But this was, experiment was to show how their gut feeling is that they can't. So they asked them slightly more subtle questions, like, would you improve with practice or would you do worse if you were distracted? And the students, without thinking too much about it, I suppose, 25% of them answered yes to one of the questions and 40% to the other one. So even though intellectually they would, I'm sure, deny that they could predict or control these, they felt like they could. So they answered these other questions, you know, honestly, according to their emotional feelings, and they really felt that they could. So they felt that they could beat the odds somehow on the basis of being more cognitively aware whenever... Yeah, and the key there is that they felt, you know, they, I'm sure if you would have slapped them and said, wait a minute, are you saying that... They'll say, oh, no, no. But, you know, they felt that way, and people do feel that. It's a palpable feeling. If, you're, if you lose 35 times in a row at, on some slot machine, you feel like you're due. And even people like me who know that you're not really due <laughs> still feel like, oh, I, I can't quit now because, yeah. you know, you can't lose all the time. Let, let me ask you about an example you cite in your book, which is a slightly different effect, I think, because it's a kind of a bias. But anyhow, you were talking with some Israeli Air Force flight instructors, 
and uh, the question of whether they got better results out of their pilots by praising them for good performance or, you know, screaming at them for bad performance because apparently experiments with rodents, with rats, had suggested that reward was better than punishment if you want to change the behavior of the rats. But these flight instructors said, no, no, no. When we praise the pilots that have done well, they don't get any better. In fact, they usually get worse. Whereas when we scream at the guys that were bad, they get better. What, what's the real explanation there? Well, uh, yeah, actually, first of all, that wasn't me. It's either the first gear Kahneman. And one of the inspirations for the Drunkard's Walk, for my writing the book, was the Nobel Prize in, that, in 2002 for economics, which was given to um, psychologist Daniel Kahneman for his work with Tversky, who had unfortunately died by then. But I was very curious why they would give the economics prize to a psychologist, because, you know, as a physicist, I, wouldn't, I don't like to give the physics prize to a psychologist. There's not enough prizes already. But they gave it to him because they did this work, which is very crucial for decision-making. And this story that you're telling was the inspiration, I think it was for Tversky, who first started on it, to get into this field because he was giving this lecture and saying not just rats but people respond better to reward than to punishment and these people they were flight instructor instructors they were teaching instructors and they said that's wrong our experience is that just what you said that if you yell at someone he'll do better next time and no matter how much we praise him he does worse and first he was thinking to himself you know that makes sense i mean a lot of us probably have that experience we go how could these studies show otherwise and then he realized it has to do with something called a regression to the mean which is this. Let's suppose that a flight training fighter pilot is something where your talent doesn't change overnight. It's not like learning, let's say, to throw a ball in a cup. It's a very difficult uh, task. It changes very slowly, so pretty much at any point in time for the month before and after, let's say, your talent is about the same. It's not going to suddenly change. Now, suppose that one day you have a great day. Well, of course, there are random there are fluctuations. Whatever your level of talent is, some days you'll do better, and some days you'll do worse just by chance alone. So suppose that by chance you make a perfect landing, and the guy says to you, perfect landing, now you know you got to do it that way. And then the next few times you just don't do it because it was perfect by chance. You have a certain interval of good and badness within your talent, and that happened to hit right at the right spot, and you made a perfect landing. But your talent isn't quite there yet where you can do it every time. So the next time you'll go more toward the mean, more toward your normal behavior, which is not perfect. Okay? Right. So I praise you, but you did worse. I go, what good was that praise? Now look at another guy who was at the other end of, of that interval. So you did better than normal. This guy did worse than normal. He, like, tears up his wheel or something. And you go, how could you do that? You know, you got to do this, focus more, da, da, da. And next time, well, you know what? He does his more typical landing next time, too. But now the more typical one is better than the outlier, right? And now you go, oh, thank God I yelled at him. He learned something. <laughs> so this is regression to the mean, which is if you do something that's more of an outlier, the chances are next time that you're going to do something that's not an outlier. I mean, chances are always better that you're not going to do an outlier, so, you know, you're going to go back. And so first he realized that this was what was going on, and he realized, you know what, there's a lot of such misconceptions in the way we make decisions and look at things. The title of the book, The Drunkard's Walk, which also is called The Random Walk Among Mathematicians, comes from a process where something is moving and randomly changing directions. And if you plot that out, let's say you look at a tabletop and something's moving on a tabletop and it's changing directions at random. There's a few things that you'll notice about it that I think are very um, symbolic of all the different mistakes we make. One is that you start at the beginning, you look at an hour later, you'll be somewhere else. You'll get from A to B, even though there's no intention or no direction to where you're going. You're just randomly. So people will make progress <laughs> in some direction, whether they're trying to or not. So when you look at someone's progress, you have to wonder, or even if they're doing poorly, you have to know that it's due partly to their 
intention and partly to randomness because everyone's life has many random factors that come into it. The second thing is if you watch that path wandering around, there will be times when it seems to be moving pretty much in one particular direction for quite a while, or it doesn't seem to be changing directions at random. And that's also typical of randomness, and that's typical of, you know, you can be a random at business and, and still have good years, several good years in a row, like several heads in a row when you flip coins, and that can still happen by randomness. It doesn't mean that you're better than the others. The other thing is, if you look at that wandering on a tabletop, there will be times where it seems to be lingering in some spot. It goes left, it comes back. It goes up, it comes back down. That kind of clustering, also typical. All these things are typical of randomness, but when we see them in the real world, we have a hard time believing that there's not something else behind them. I'm talking with Leonard Mladenov, theoretical physicist and author of The Drunkard's Walk, How Randomness Rules Our Lives. What about polling, Leonard? We see this all the time in the news. Candidate Rodney has a slim lead over candidate Fleabag, 52% to 48%. Yeah, and the margin of error is 5%. Yeah, so if you're within the margin of error, that's the margin of error. That's why they call it the margin of error. So it means if you took the poll, again, there's a good chance that it would turn out the other way. You have to understand that a poll is a kind of measurement that there's error and even though you're going to get an answer, you know, it's not necessarily a meaningful one. It's like if you have a scale, a cruddy old rusty scale, that, that if you step on it three times in a row, it can be anywhere within 10 pounds. It'll be, you know, 170, then you'll step on it again, 175, you'll step on it again, it'll be 167. And suppose you do that a lot, and you, you know that even when you're looking at it, it's moving around, right? Right. Well, then you know yourself, okay, that, that's the margin of error. So you're probably smart enough that when you step on it, you don't take it that seriously to within up. You say, oh, I lost two pounds from yesterday, but you know that you step on it another time, you can gain them right back, right? <laughs> well, with a scale where you can see it, people would, would get that message, but they don't seem to get it with polls where it's more abstract, but it's the same effect going on. Depending on how many people you ask, your, your poll has a certain precision, and to try and define things within that is just misleading. Yeah. Well, finally, Leonard... To, to what extent do faulty statistics account for belief in some of the paranormal phenomena, lucky charms, haunted houses, uh, even remote sensing, or, or where people think that they can sense that a, a relative of theirs is in trouble? They know when you know somebody dies and they say, I predicted that, or an earthquake, things like this. Well, there's a lot of different effects that go on there. Uh, sure, there's coincidences that happen, and you underestimate their chance. In Drunkard's Walk, I talked about a... Um, a church group that was supposed to meet at a church on a certain time on a Sunday night, and by chance, uh, all 12 people were late, and the church had a, some kind of gas problem. The whole church blew up, would have killed them all if they had come on time. They blew up at like 7.07 or something like that, and not one of them was there, and they said, thank God that you know God was looking over us. But So coincidences like that happen, but you have to understand that even though that's a one-in-a-million shot, there's a million such coincidences that can happen every day that you could hear about. And so that's why occasionally you hear about them, and it doesn't really mean any more than that. And sometimes that's what's involved in, in these psychic thinking. Sometimes it's what's called the confirmation bias, where people will swear, for instance, that they're cursed in a grocery store, is a simple example, because their, their line is always the longest line, and it really feels to them like it is. And they think, since it's, it's such a trivial, mundane example, nobody cares, but if it were a more important thing, you'd think you have some power or some curse against you. And in reality, what's happening there is something called the availability bias, which is that when you're in line and it flows through smoothly, you forget it and don't give it a second thought. When you're in line and you're in a hurry and, you know, some lady in front of you has bought the chicken for $1.49 a pound, but she's being charged $1.50 a pound and she's arguing about it, uh, and you're 
takes 10 minutes and delays you, then you remember that and you think that you're cursed. You're always behind someone like that. So that's called the availability bias. And, I mean, it works with me, too. I'm a grocery store. I always think I'm in the <laughs> And when I read that, I said, oh, so that's what's happening. You know, and then I start paying attention when I don't get held up, and I realize, yeah, that's really what's happening. See, a lot of times I do flow right through. <laughs> so there's a lot of reasons that people mistakenly um, believe in that. Letter Miladinov, thank you so much for taking the chance to talk with me. Uh, it's my pleasure. Take care. Charles Burl Ives was a singer, author, and actor. But Seth spoke with Leonard Mladenov, who by chance is a theoretical physicist. Now, Seth, one of the things you didn't talk about with Leonard Mladenov is the role of randomness on the quantum scale, the very, very, very tiny. Yeah, well, of course, that was one of the big uh, discoveries of 20th century physics, namely that, uh, you know, things are not so predictable as we thought in the time of Newton, and that at the scale of the very, very small, of course, all you can do is say that there's a, a certain probability that something will happen, but you can't say exactly what's going to happen, only that it has 72% probability of turning out this way or that way. And uh, that's a fundamental uh, uh, precept of nature. Okay, so when you're talking about very small, the quantum scale, are you talking about the size of an atom? Yeah, typically something the size of an atom, smaller, larger, but roughly. Uh, for example, if, if you think you have an atom in a box, yeah, well, it may be only 99% probable that it's actually in the box. There, there might be a 1% probability that it's outside of the box. And of course, that doesn't make sense in the macro world. Uh, Isaac Newton would have been stunned to think that there was some question about whether something was in the box or outside the box. But of course, in the world of the very small, quantum mechanics rules, and it turns out that things are merely probabilistic. This is the sort of thing that can keep you up late at night staring at the ceiling. There's some probability it will. Coming up, the role of randomness in restoring the populations of devastated ecosystems, also why the erratic scurrying of ants is anything but. Plus, a clip from this movie. Apes don't read philosophy. Yes, they do, Otto. They just don't understand it. Now, let me correct you on a couple things, okay? Aristotle was not Belgian. The central message of Buddhism is not every man for himself. You and the London Underground is not a political movement. That's so random on Big Picture Science. made a deliberate and definite choice to listen to That's So Random on Big Picture Science. Now, most scientists like order. You couldn't tell this by looking at the mountains of books and papers in their offices. No, that's a bit of a cliche, Molly. <laughs> no, Seth, and we'll probably get defiant emails from the tidy scientists out there, which actually includes you, Seth, doesn't it? Your office is actually very neat. Well, I like to be able to find stuff. Okay. <laughs> There's a plan. Anyway, let's run with this idea. So even scientists who study the chaotic, diverse jamboree that we call the natural world rely on order. In ecology, we often have sort of a view that systems are very predictable. Fair enough. Order is part of science. We don't launch spacecraft based on a guesstimate of the trajectory, and we prefer medical prescriptions to be more precise than, you know, a dash of white stuff and a bunch of whatever. In science, we try to control the variables and accurately predict the results. An ecosystem, and we put a certain amount of nutrients and species in it, we would get the same species time in and time out. At least that's what John Chase thought, 
until he got to graduate school and tried to actually replicate ecological systems. He'd add nutrients, put in the species, and the result? They would go all in sorts of different directions. Some species would go crazy, other species would be non-existent or rare, and it seemed like there was a lot of unpredictability going on in these communities. So he decided to study that randomness. He and his team created a number of ponds, added nutrients and species in the Tyson Research Center field station in Missouri, and watched the results. Okay, John, now first describe these ponds. We actually use standard, what they call cattle tanks or stock tanks that you can buy from any hardware store. These are the things that people use to water their cattle out west or other places. We use these as experimental ponds where we can put dirt in the bottom of these things, we can put water in them, and then dragonflies will come and lay their eggs, and water boatmen will land in them, and plankton will sort of fly around in the air, and we can manipulate the kinds of ecosystems that occur in these systems, and just basically ask what influences the biodiversity of these ponds. Okay, so these cattle tanks are actually fairly large. Yeah, the ones that we used for this particular experiment were 300 gallons But they go up to 1,000 gallons, and we've actually been manipulating the size, the size of the ecosystem, as a way to explore some of these questions. And each pond had a number of ingredients in it, a number of species and so forth. What did you put into each pond? Every species went into every pond over three years. But in the first year, we used a random number generator to put certain species into each pond. And then we would let them sort of go about their business for a year or two before the other species went into those ponds. So so what kind of species did you put into these ponds? What creatures went in? Yeah, well, we put in many species. These included, in all, 77 species of invertebrates. These are your dragonflies. These are plankton. These are little clams and little shrimps. Uh, they include a lot of different kinds of insects. And it turns out beetles are extremely diverse in these ecosystems. We also have a number of plants. These include what are true plants as well as many species of algae. And what was key was the order that you put these species in. So say a little bit about that. You have these clams, you have algae, you have dragonflies. And what what order did you put them in? You had, what, 10 ponds? Right. Well, there were 10 ponds per treatment, and there were several different treatments that manipulated the amount of nutrients that went in. And so for each treatment, there were 10 ponds. And within each pond, Again, we have 70-some species of animals and another bunch of species of plants, and we choose a random group of those species every year, and this random group of species go into the pond in that first year, and then the second year, the next batch of species go into that pond, and then the third year, the last batch of species go into that pond. Can you be more specific with that? When you say random batch, you you grab one little dragonfly and stick them in, and one clam and a handful of algae, or what do you mean by random? Yeah, absolutely. It is a small handful of algae. It's a, <laughs> a several individuals of a species. If it's a dragonfly or if it's a snail, we'd put in several individuals of that species and basically give it a start. Let it colonize that site. Let it start to grow up its numbers. And then we let the community sort of go from there. And how long did you let the community go? How long did these ponds sit? So over the first three years, we manipulated the timing of when species went in. And then we let them sit for five more years, uh, monitoring them every year and exploring which species are in which ponds. Okay. And then when you went back and you took a look at what communities emerged from these ponds, what did you discover? Basically, we discovered that the species that live in a pond have a lot to do with who got there first. Now, because there are so many species involved in this experiment, we can't tell exactly the mechanism or why we see which species in which ponds, but there seems to be a ton 
of just variation. The same pond, bought from the same companies, put with the same water. A little bit of difference at the very start, just a little bit of difference early on, leads to huge variation in the kinds of communities that emerge seven years later. Are you saying that if you put in the dragonflies first and the clams, three years later you have yeah. dragonflies and clams tend to be the predominant species? Is it is it sort of that simple? Yeah, it, it tends to be. Now, some species are always going to be dominant, and some species are always going to be wimps. But it turns out that a majority of the species in these ponds are, are somewhat interchangeable. And when you put one species in first, you let it get a little bit of a head start, you let it grow, it can build up its numbers, and you start to get dynamics in the system that give it a feedback. It's what we call a positive feedback. And this positive feedback allows that species to maintain its dominance in that community, even after the inoculations or the introduction of these other species into the ponds. So you don't know why it is that these ponds don't balance out, because there's a certain number of, they're just a certain number of nutrients, and there would be competition for those nutrients, and there might even be, I don't know if any of these insects eat each other at all. Oh, they certainly do. Okay, so it would seem that over time that you would get this balance, but you don't. The, the first ones in are the ones that are kind of kings of the pond. Well, I should clarify that part of the experiment actually said sometimes the first ones in are the ones that dominate and are kings of the pond, and sometimes it balances out much more like the way you're describing. And my research is really about trying to figure out when does the dominance occur, these sort of predictabilities these predictable communities occur? When do we see this balance? And when do we see this randomness starting to play a bigger role? So it's too premature for you to make a statement about what the role of randomness is in these ecosystems. Well, in fact, I would say that the role of randomness can have a larger effect in some types of environments. And one of the things that we did in this particular study was show that in higher nutrient environments, we found randomness to play a much larger role than in lower nutrient environments. And the idea is that in lower nutrient environments, only a few types of species can persist, can live in these harsher conditions, in these very nutrient-poor conditions. And then the dominant ones win. In these higher productivity conditions, these higher resources, a lot of species can make it, a lot of them can do well, and then you start to get this priority, who gets there first, can have a much bigger effect. I wonder if you could give me a specific example where ecological restoration is tricky or maybe hasn't gone the way that ecologists would like it to and where your insights into the role of randomness might help. Well, yeah, actually that's something where my research is is currently moving. And it turns out that in many kinds of ecosystems, including prairies and wetlands, when we recreate communities, we're not able to recreate the numbers of species, the biodiversity that occurred historically, what we call remnant communities. And we think that this this process of randomness can play a very important role in these wetlands and these prairies and other kinds of ecosystems like that in allowing more species to occur. But it's not that more species are occurring in any given location. It's that more species are occurring in the entire landscape. Because of this randomness, you have some species that can occur in some areas and other species that occur in other areas, and you get a larger diversity at the regional scale than we see in any local community. Of course, if there's randomness involved, how can an ecologist who's interested in ecological restoration control for that? Well, I think the word control is part of the problem. We try to recreate communities in a very specific way without recognizing that this random process can play an important role in creating the biodiversity that we see in a given area. 
And so we just have to allow for some of these processes to occur. And finally, John, any thoughts on evolution as a whole? It occurs to me that when the dinosaurs met their demise, there were a number of mammals that were left. And the fact that the dinosaurs were no longer around, those mammals had free reign to evolve. And we're all thankful for that because that's why you and I are here today. So do you see this also playing out in in evolution writ large? Well, I think that that's a fascinating question. And it actually is not that far away from what a lot of evolutionary biologists think, that if you replay the tape, the evolutionary history, you might get a very different answer if you replayed it over and over and over again. And people have actually done experiments to explore this kind of process. I'm not an evolutionary biologist, so I'm not going to go too deep in this problem. But I do think that randomness can and does play a very important role in the evolutionary process as well. John Chase, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you very much. John Chase is a biologist and director of the Tyson Research Center at Washington University in St. Louis. He deferred modestly to speculate about the role of randomness in evolution, saying he wasn't an evolutionary biologist. But Lori Marino is. Lori, what is the role of randomness in evolution? Mutations, for example, are random. The mutations that we get in our DNA, these spontaneous mutations, uh, evolution is dependent on that, right? Yes, evolution natural selection and other mechanisms of evolution are dependent upon random genetic mutations, but that's really where the randomness ends. Now, where do those mutations come from? Indeed, they are random. Where do they come from? Well, these are mutations that are caused by high-energy waves that come in from deep space and impinge upon the Earth and bombard our genetic material and cause genetic mistakes. And those genetic mistakes are always happening. And if we didn't have them, there would be no life on this planet because there certainly wouldn't be any evolution. So that's this random element. But on the other hand, natural selection is anything but random. That's right. Natural selection is the predominant mechanism by which evolution works. It is when those organisms that get the most frequencies of genes into the next generation contribute the most. And because genes are the material of inheritance that make behavioral and physiological physical traits, then those traits get passed on. That's why it's very selective, and that's why it's called natural selection, not natural randomness or not natural spontaneity. Exactly, yes. (laughs) Okay, Lori Marino, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Emory University in Atlanta is where Lori Marino makes her home as an evolutionary biologist. On the ground, in the desert, on the sidewalk, in trees, and in your kitchen, however, are where ants make their home. You can always tell somebody who works on ants because they've got their pants tucked into their socks so that (laughs) nothing runs up your legs. Stanford University biologist Deborah Gordon studies ants. All that frantic zigzagging that ants do across your clean kitchen floor, their behavior is anything but random. So, so right now, Deborah, we're looking for ants. We're standing outside your building here on Stanford campus. Do you spot any ants? You're probably quite trained <laughs> being able to spot them. The ants around here are Argentine ants, and they like edges, so I always look for them at the edge of pavement, like oh, yeah. that one right there. Ants, like all insects, can't control their body temperature, so they can't move when they're cold. And I think they're going slowly now because even though it's warm outside, it's been cold the last few nights, and so the surface that they're on is cold. So there's one 
And there's one, and uh, you see a few more coming down that way. Now, whenever humans look down on their own cities from an airplane or from a building, the remark that people always make is people look like ants. But human behavior is not like ant behavior. Ant colonies are always organized without any central control. So no ant is following orders or giving instructions to any other ant. And no ant knows what it's doing. It's not working with a purpose, it's responding to what's happening right around it. So there's no boss, they're all equals? They're all equals, there's no foreman, there are no bureaucrats, there's nobody with a clipboard saying go over there. <laughs> so unlike in the movie Ants, where the ants get shuffled around to their tasks, each ant decides on its own what to do, and it uses only very local information. What's about to happen here, you see when the two ants come together, they meet, they touch antennae, so most ants can't see, they function mostly by smell, and they smell with their antennae. So when one ant touches another, like those two just did, it can assess whether the other one is a nest mate, because the ants are covered in a layer of grease that carries the colony-specific odor. They bumped, you could actually see them actually bounce off each other just very slightly. Well, they weren't bouncing off each other, they were touching antennae. They have a chemical on their antennae that is transmitted. Is that how it works? They have a layer of grease smeared all over their bodies, and it keeps them from drying out, and it also carries a colony-specific odor. So many insects, including all the social insects, are covered in a layer of grease, basically long-chain fatty acids, hydrocarbons, and so they're called cuticular hydrocarbons. And in many insects, they're used to carry some odor as well as to prevent the insect from drying out. The ants don't have individual identity, yet they do have jobs. Every ant right now that we're looking at has a role. Yes. At any time, the colony allocates workers to different tasks. So all colonies have to make a nest and repair the nest if it gets broken. They have to get food. They have to take care of the young and feed them and groom them. And so at any time in an ant colony, certain workers will do certain tasks. Yeah, now we're going to sit cross-legged. Good, that's easier than squatting. Um, what is the secret to their success without a, a big boss telling them what to do? One of the species of ants I've studied a lot are harvester ants, and a harvester ant colony organizes its work using interaction networks. So each ant decides what task to perform based on its rate of encounter with other ants. So each ant can assess the task of another using its cuticular hydrocarbons. But that may always be changing. So you're not assigned one role in your life as an ant. You have to be nimble. Yes, ants change tasks in the course of their life. Since it's not organized, there isn't some grand plan that the ants have. Every ant just pays attention to the signals that it's received in the moment from another ant? That's right. Each ant is only aware of its very recent interactions with other ants and with the smells right around it. An ant doesn't remember anything for very long. Hold on right there, and we'll return with more Deborah Gordon, more ants, more random and not-so-random behavior. It's Big Picture Science. This is Big Picture Science. We now continue with Molly's conversation with biologist Deborah Gordon about the non-random behavior of ants. Can you just say a little bit about what's it like to be out in the desert, which is where you are in the southwest desert, studying harvester ants, what you wear, and because you're out in the hot sun, and do you sit as we are now and just watch ants? When I work in the desert, it's actually a lot more comfortable than anybody imagines. I work at about 4,000 feet elevation, and the ants in the desert 
like us can't tolerate very high temperatures. So they come out really early in the morning and when it gets unbearably hot for us, it's also unbearably hot for them and we go back in. I never sit on the ground in the desert because the ants sting. So when I'm standing in the desert, if I have my pants in my socks, then I'm just a pair of boots to them and the worst they can do is crawl up and I can brush them off. But sitting down would not be a good idea. But you actually count ants. And I've, I've read that you've, you know, maybe you'll, you'll take apart a colony or maybe if one's been, and you actually count the ants. And you can't stand to do that. You have to get down and you count ants. Is that one, two, three, four, that kind of counting? Not That looks like that's about 100, that's about 100. Yes, we had counters and we had a lot of people and we picked up the ants and put them from one box into the other and clicked the counters. Now, you were able to, how you did this, I don't know, but you were able to actually fool some ants by presenting another smell to them. Is smell the right word? Odor? Odor, smell. smell. And I wonder if you can explain how it is that you did that and then what the reaction of the ants were when they received another odor. I did some experiments with Mike Green, who's at the University of Colorado at Denver, and we were able to manipulate interaction rate by extracting the hydrocarbons off of ants and putting it onto little glass beads. So we created ant mimics, which consist of just a little sphere of glass, a tiny sphere of glass coated with the smell of an ant. And we dropped them into the nest. And by dropping into the nest, these ant mimics at the correct rate, we were able to elicit foraging behavior in ants. So that's how we learned that an ant simply needs to meet something that smells like another ant at the appropriate rate in order to decide what to do next. And do you know what's encoded in that message, if that's the right term? Is it a complicated message, or is it very, very simple? Is it sort of directions like the directions I get off of, say, MapQuest, which are kind of complicated and often wrong, or is it simple, go straight, or do one task? When the ants meet, they don't give each other directions at all. It's not go do something or stop doing something. It's merely, I just met you and the ants are just using the rate at which they meet without any message at all to decide what to do. And the rule goes something like this. I'm a forager. I expect to meet a forager every so often. And if I do, my chances of foraging stay about the same. But if my rate of interaction with other foragers goes down, I become a little less likely to forage. When ant colonies are broken up, is it traumatic for the ant colonies? I mean, if, this were, if these were bonobos or chimps and we broke them up and moved half here and half there, it would be traumatic for them because we know they have emotions the way that humans have emotions and, and so forth to some degree. But do ants, you know, people kick ant colonies. Do they recover? I guess I'm wondering if they care whether or not who they're with, do they just begin building a new colony again? For me, one of the most alien things about ants is that they never get discouraged and I've destroyed a lot of ant nests um, more than I'd like to, but to dig up the colony, you have to destroy the nest. And one of the amazing things to me is the way that the ants just get right to work building it again. So one difference between an ant colony and say a group of primates is that the individuals don't have individual relationships and attachments to particular other individuals. And another difference is that since an ant doesn't have a goal or an objective in mind, it doesn't get discouraged when it can't do what it's trying to do. It just keeps trying. We have ants in the lab that move the same little twig back and forth for weeks. Deborah Gordon, thank you very much for talking to me. Thanks very much. Deborah Gordon is a biologist at Stanford University.
okay, if there's one place I'd like stability to reign, and by this I mean no chaos, disorder, free-for-alls, spontaneous happenings, or wild parties, it's in my brain. When it comes to my mind and those billions, I hope there still are some billions, of tiny cells doing their thing in my gray matter, I prefer that they do it in a calm, orderly, and logical fashion. No improvising. You hear that, guys? But I'm out of luck. Our brains are where we need randomness most. Physicist John Beggs and others have discovered that spontaneity among neurons, that is brain cells suddenly firing in random crazy ways, is key to mental stability. Okay, I'll let Seth question this Beggs. John, at the moment, some of my brain cells are firing randomly. Should I be alarmed by that? Uh, no, no, you should rejoice in that. That's, uh, that means that you're healthy and that's how things ought to be. If they weren't firing too randomly, then we might have a problem. Well, you say we might have a problem, but it sounds to me like the opposite should be true. I mean, I like to think of my brain as some sort of powerful computer, but a computer is a very methodical, you know, deliberate sort of thing. Instead, you're saying that my brain doesn't operate that way. What does that mean? No, it doesn't. Uh, I think typically we, we tend to think of the brain in terms of computers because that's the device that we understand that processes information. But... Our brains were put together in a very different way. They're kind of a mixture between order and disorder. So you need a little bit of randomness in there so that things don't lock up. If things get too ordered, you might have a problem. For example, epilepsy is, is perhaps a state where you just have too much firing of all your neurons at the same time. That, that would be too ordered. Well, you're saying that would be too ordered. What, what do you mean? Well, although people are really trying to define epilepsy even now, it's, it's not completely understood. One of the things that most people would agree on is that if you have lots of brain cells all firing synchronously, all being active at roughly the same time, this is one way of thinking about a seizure, and you really wouldn't want that. Well, how did you determine that brains fire randomly? I mean, uh, did you study human brains? How did you learn about this? We take little sections of brain and we can put them on a microelectrode array. And basically this is just a, a large number of tiny little wires. And we can keep that little section of brain alive for hours at a time, kind of fooling it that it's still in the same brain. And we can eavesdrop on its electrical activity with these wires. And by recording this activity, we can study it after the experiment by analyzing it with computers. And we can see if the activity is very ordered or disordered or something in between. And it seems that a lot of the healthy brains that we take a look at have a good mixture of order and randomness. Well, this has been described as a situation called self-organized criticality which, you know, if I uttered that at a cocktail party, people would look at me strangely. What, what is self-organized criticality, John? Well, the, the typical example that people have of self-organized criticality is a sand pile. So imagine you had a table, and on the table you started to drop little grains of sand in the same spot. Well, eventually this would build up to form some sort of cone of sand. And the cone would get steeper and steeper until finally it would slough off a large number of sand grains. We'd call that an avalanche. And as it did that, the cone would become less steep. Then, as you continue to drop sand on it, it would become more steep again. It would lose some sand, and then it would, it would kind of go back and forth between being too steep and not too steep. And eventually, it would settle into something we'd call a steady state. And when it's at that steady state, at that slope, the cone would produce avalanches of all different sizes. So if you were at that state to drop a single grain of sand on it, you could get maybe one grain of sand toppling. That's the most common thing you get. But sometimes you could also get a huge number of them falling off. 
And so if you were to take a look at that, you'd find that the distribution or the number of sand grains that fell off would vary extremely widely. Sometimes you get only one, sometimes you get hundreds. But if I can sort of relate this to the functioning of the brain, I mean, I can understand this in terms of sand piles, but you're saying that the firing of neurons sort of follows the same sort of behavior. In other words, when I'm having some sort of thought or reacting to something I see, I can have just a few neurons firing, or it could, under some circumstances or occasionally, in some sort of chaotic way, it could be a whole lot of neurons firing. Have I got that right? Yeah, I, I think you do. I think that's pretty much it. And it seems that healthy brains are somewhere in, in that range where the sand pile is after it's had a long time to, to settle. And by that, we mean that when something comes in, it'll activate sometimes a few neurons, sometimes a medium number, and, and very, very rarely it'll activate a huge, huge number of neurons. Okay, so the obvious question to me is, why? I mean, why would the brain operate like that? It, it sounds to me, since our brains are the result of a long period of evolution, this must be some mechanism to adapt the brain to, to new circumstances. Uh, it might be, yeah. So let me step back a little bit to, to kind of explain something that, that ties in with this, but isn't directly related to self-organized criticality. So you mentioned the word chaos a while ago. And so chaos is related to this picture of self-organized criticality. And, uh, it's related in the following way. Most people think of chaos as really sensitive dependence on initial conditions. So, for example, the weather is chaotic. If a butterfly is flapping its wings in Brazil, that could have an effect on the weather up here in the northern hemisphere two weeks later, perhaps. Right? So a very tiny little input could cause a really big change. So let's go back to the, the sand pile. If the sand pile is too steep and you drop one grain of sand on there, boom, you're going to get a huge number of grains falling. That would be chaotic. So the system would be super sensitive to an input. And you don't actually want to be right there at chaos because things are unstable. So you back a little bit away off of chaos, and now you drop one grain of sand, and what you get is sometimes you get an appropriate response. Only a little bit comes off, not too much. But still you have the ability, when it's needed, to really change your behavior as a result of a small input. So, John, if I understand this correctly, what you're saying here is that a brain, when you, when you stimulate a, the neuron in a brain, right, some neuron in there for who knows whatever reason, you've seen something, you've thought something, whatever, the response is somewhat unpredictable. It might just, you know, send that message down to a few other neurons. It may send it to a whole lot of neurons uh, occasionally. And it's that unpredictability that causes the brain to act in what we would call a random way. Yeah, yeah. You, you could think of the brain, and you stimulate a single neuron. And there's basically three different things that could happen. One, the activity could die out, you know, so it's damped. And maybe that happens when you're asleep or you're drunk or something like that. Now, the other extreme is it overreacts. So let's say you have epilepsy, and we stimulate a neuron, and boom, all these neurons go off after a few uh, milliseconds, something like that. That's the extreme of overexcited compared to the extreme of being completely damped. And somewhere in the middle is where we think healthy brains reside. So you stimulate a few neurons, and what they do is they set off a chain of neurons that doesn't amplify and it doesn't die out too fast. It kind of is sustained for a while. We've talked about the fact that this must be some sort of adaptation. I mean, it's a mechanism for adaptation that allows you to sort of rewire your brain in the face of new circumstances. But how does firing a whole bunch of neurons rewire your brain? Ah, okay. That's a really good question. That's, to be honest, one of the things that we're working on. We, we don't know. We have some ideas and we're testing them, but we really don't have it all figured out. 
But I have to say, this sounds to me like a strategy that's like trying to change my favorite software program by randomly rearranging lines of code. I, I, I wouldn't have thought that it would work. Well, it wouldn't if you're using a computer. But again, the brain is designed in a completely different way. So you really do want a little bit of randomness here and there to make things better. You know, you can take a look at evolution. Where would we be without random mutations, right? We'd all look the same, and we'd all be slithering on the bottom of the ocean probably. So that, that wouldn't be very good. You need randomness. In a sense, it's a spark of creativity. It, it causes new connections to be formed. It causes some variation. It allows you to break out of some rigid order. And variation is necessary for brains. After all, we have to adapt to a very complex world out there. I'm speaking with John Beggs, a physicist at Indiana University. John, is there some sort of relationship between these random events in the brain and, for example, memory, or, or maybe even IQ, intelligence? This is a question that we can't really answer at the moment. We're working on these types of things. But we think, based on our theories and our computer simulations, that if the brain is poised at a critical point, somewhere between boring order and just complete randomness, if it's somewhere between there, that's when its activity is most complex, and that's when it is most adaptive, and that's when it's able to do a lot of its information processing tasks best. So you're saying that uh, people that are particularly smart might have brains that are particularly random. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say particularly random, but just random enough. That's the key. You don't want too much random activity because then things are not going to reflect the order that's in the universe that, that we live in. You want just the right mix. And so that's why the system has to self-organize. It has to sort of skid between these two different extremes, somewhere between being too ordered and then maybe it goes to be uh, a little bit more random and finally it, it, it reaches some happy medium. Finally, John, let me ask, are the brains of nematodes, you know, worms, grasshoppers, blue jays, or whales, any more or less chaotic than our brains? In, in other words, are critters that might have more deterministic behavior, you know, sort of hardwired behavior, are their brains less chaotic, less random? Well, I, that brings up a really interesting issue. If you were to consider being chaotic or being random, similar to an epileptic state, then there is an interesting situation. The only animals that have epilepsy are the ones that are very advanced. So we have epilepsy, and dogs, some dogs that are bred, perhaps overbred, have epilepsy. But really, we're the only animals that have epilepsy on a regular basis. And perhaps that has something to do with the fact that we're pushing, or evolution is pushing us closer and closer to a point where the, the brain has got to get the most out of the information that it has. It's very, very close to the edge of chaos. And if you get very close, sometimes you go over. So epilepsy might be the price of being a sentient species. That's really very interesting. Well, John Beggs, I want to thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. John Beggs is a physicist at Indiana University in Bloomington. And that's it for this episode of Big Picture Science. We've led the show with our thanks for all except the support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and the SETI Institute. If you'd like to comment on the program, please visit our Facebook page. You've been listening to the That's So Random episode. Lackadaisical, stable boy, practical, derelict, anarchy, chaos, disorder, messiness, haphazardness, water closet, bonanza, or a ton.